Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus says Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever." in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people, Israel, as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. 
Now therefore, O, o Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look into your word that you would bless us, that we would find encouragement from this word and rebuke as necessary, Father, and strength by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. A little bit of review as we do um, before we go on to these chapters. It's kind of hard to, or it's kind of easy to get lost in the midst of of uh, First, Second Samuel, and First, Second Kings, and First, Second Chronicles, and the parallels between those. But um, you remember previously in chapter six that the ark finally makes its way into Jerusalem, and David is David is leaping before the ark and dancing, and Michael looks on and despises David and. Um, he explains to her that he was not trying to impress anybody, but he was dancing before the Lord. And um, the last thing we read in that chapter is that Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her birth. So she was, she was barren um, because of this uh, despising of the servant of the Lord. And then we turn to chapter 7, and in comes the prophet Nathan. This is the first interaction we've had with the prophet Nathan, and Nathan is going to have significant role in, in uh, David's kingdom, certainly in the time to come. He is instrumental in David's reign, instrumental in David's faith, his walk before the Lord. And so we find out what about David, what does David want to do? He wants to build a temple. He wants to build a temple. That's his desire. See now, I, d- um, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So he's seeing the juxtaposition between his home and the, the home of God, in a sense. And he's, he thinks it's inappropriate that he would dwell with cedar panels in a home and that the ark would have this portable tent that it, um, that it, that it dwelt within. Um, you remember that this isn't the only time where this, par- this contrast between the houses and the, the space of the temple uh, comes into play. During the time of Zerubbabel, after the exile, when Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah coming back to restore order to Jerusalem. This is from the book of, of Haggai. Um, one, of the, one of the things the prophet said is the people dwelled in paneled houses and yet 
the uh, temple lay desolate. This contrast, this inappropriateness of of living in riches at home and neglecting the the temple of God and the place where um, the ark was to dwell. Haggai says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies desolate? And so the whole question is, we need to reorient our priorities here and be less focused on the paneling of our homes and more focused on the church, the church of that time. Um, So David's request, is it right or is it wrong? It's a good request. It seems appropriate. It's an appropriate request to want to order worship and to honor God. Um, But we, we like, like, um, like Haggai says, we are often more concerned for our private ventures, right, our own bank accounts, um, than we are for God's house. And so the house of God can lay neglected, and yet our own kingdoms are being built up. Um, in other words, what you spend on your money indicates where your heart dwells, right? I, I'm not making that up. I think Jesus said something about that, right? How you spend your money indicates your heart. So um, it's so encouraging when you see somebody of of means, which is all of us, right? We fit into the category of people with means. So encouraging to see see it when um, when they have a love for the church, and that love for the church um, affects what they do with their money. Um, that's a wonderful sign of faith. It's very encouraging when you see someone's love for God makes it as far as their pocketbook, right? Um, the deacons would concur with me in that. What does Nathan tell David initially? Do it. Do it. The Lord's with you. This is good. Do this thing. And then God visits Nathan, and we learn in verse 17 that this is not a dream, it's a vision. Right? And how are visions different than dreams? Well, in a dream you're asleep, in a vision you're not. Right? So he is... He is somehow communicating with the Lord, not in sleep, but in a vision. And God, therefore, is visiting Nathan and gives directions to Nathan. Nathan, the prophet, is to go to David and say, Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? And then what is God's argument? I love this argument. What is God... What does God argue after that? He says, did I ever ask for a house? I really haven't ever asked for a house. (laughs) Which is very interesting, right? He, um, verse 7, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And, and so, he, God is saying, look, um, this is a good desire. The time will come. You're not the man for it. Um, but, but remember that don't be chomping at the bit. This is not something that I've asked for. And then, um, And then we get, starting at verse 8, God's covenant with David. God makes these amazing promises to King David. 
right? The Lord, and, and all of it, all of it is astonishing because it boils down and it says, you know, I never asked for a house, but what I'm going to do is make a house for you. That's what God says. I didn't ask for a house, but I'm going to make a house for you. I mean, that's, that's the, the graciousness of God, isn't it? Um, the God who in all eternity dwelled in unfathomable love and peace created us, we sin against Him, and He still calls us to, into the divine life through redemption. And is always thinking of, of us. And it's mind-boggling that God would think of us. Um, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm going to build a house for you, right? You don't need to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And that's, that's, it's, it's parallel to, um, to that astonishing statement that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did something for us when we were helpless and could do nothing for ourselves. And He gave us His Son. You know, what God is like our God? The God of the Aztecs required human sacrifice and, and beating hearts plucked from chests. Buddha requires achievement, right? Um, Allah demands hatred. But Yahweh, He denies Himself and builds a house for us. It's stupendous, right? He denies Himself honor and builds a house for us. He sacrifices His own Son because He loves the world. And what did we do for Him before He sacrificed His Son for us? We didn't do squat. We did nothing except provide the sin His Son had to die for. Right? There was no achievement. There was no enlightenment. There was no work done that impressed God Almighty. It was all all Him. So notice the tender promises to, to David that God makes to David. I took you, notice those words, I took you to be ruler over my people. That's the first promise. Second promise is I have been with you. Third promise, I have cut off all your enemies. Fourth, I will make your name great. Five, I will plant my people that they may not be disturbed. Six, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Seven, when you die, your sons will reign and they will be established. And then eight, he, your son, he's going to build a house for my name. Right? And so it points forward to the building of the house that will come. Okay, so what son is that? All those promises are glorious promises. I think they're immediately understandable. I don't need to go through and explain those things. God made him king. God subdued his enemies. God provided for him. God is raising up his son to reign on the throne. And um, who is that son? It's Solomon. What do we know about Solomon? Who is Solomon's mama? Who's that? Who's Bathsheba? 
Uriah's wife. Yeah, that's right. Uriah's wife and then David's wife after David murders Uriah or has him murdered. And so this, this Solomon is the one who would be that son that's spoken of here, the one that would build a house for my name. And we get these, these amazing words in 14 and 15. Think of these words, think of Solomon, think of what you know about Solomon from beginning to end, right? What do you know about Solomon? You know about his heights and his, his depths. You know about his wisdom and his stupidity. You know about his faith and his lack of faith. You know about his love for the Lord and his love for idols. Right? He's, he's a split-minded man. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. That's Solomon. But look at this promise here. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness will never depart from him as I took it away from Saul, when I remove, whom I removed from before you. I mean, think of this promise. Do you, do you pray for your own children? Do you worry about your children that they're following the Lord, that they know the Lord? Um, I do. I pray for them. I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and pray for my children. And wouldn't it be wonderful to have a promise like this directly from, the, from God? When he sins, I'm going to discipline him. Oh, praise God, because if he sinned and you didn't discipline him, that would mean that he's a bastard son and that he has no part of the covenant. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. Now, is God lying here? Does God lie? Okay, that's an easy one. The answer is no. And so we have to take this as truth. And yet we know Solomon's end, right? We know Solomon's end. What did, what, what's significant about Solomon's end? Or at least not his very end, but near the end. What's significant? Yeah, I mean, it says that his heart turned away from the Lord and he served foreign gods. Well, has God's promise here failed? Has God's promise here failed? Did God not correct Solomon through his life? Did he leave him just to accumulate idols and accumulate concubines and wives and and all those women who would drive his heart away from the Lord, did he just hand him over to his sin? Have the promises of God failed? Um, first, turn to 1 Kings 11. Just to make this clear. Now, my, 
the NASB, if you're reading from that, which is what I read from, prefaces this section from Solomon turns from God. Right? But we just read the passage that said, my loving kindness, my mercy will never depart from him. And so, let's read this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from after other gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after, I mean, and this is disgusting, this should revolt you. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, And you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So all of that is a rehearsal of all the idolatry that, that, um, that Solomon participated in. I mean, we judge, we judge people in this world for much less idolatry, don't we? I mean, I mean Trump likes his women too. And yet, we're pretty cool with him because he's taken on the press, you know. But here's the son of David, Solomon, who's, an, who's basically living to, to fashion um, altars for idols. Right? That's all he's doing. It's like one woman needs this, another woman, another wife, another concubine needs this. She wants to... You know, she wants to give incense to so-and-so and she wants to do this and, and he's just, he's the yes man for these wives and, and, and not only that, but he is, he is participating in this worship along with them. I mean, if we, if we went back and saw Solomon at this time in his life, we would be scandalized. 
by his unfaithfulness. But have the promises of God failed? Um, look what comes next. God raises up adversaries. <laughs> now comes the discipline, right? Now comes Solomon's discipline. You had peace, and now you've created your idols, but God's going to discipline you through, like it said before, the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. He's going to discipline you through the hands of men. right? Then, God, then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. For it came about when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel stayed there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with them, while Hadad was a young boy. They arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt, and gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. Now Hadad found great favor before Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Topanes, the queen. The sister of Topanes bore his son Ganubeth, whom Topanes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Ganubeth was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. I mean, it sounds like we're reading about Moses, doesn't it? Um, but when Hadad heard in Egypt what that David slept with his fathers and that Joab was commander of the army was dead. Hadad said to Pharaoh, send me away that I may go to my own country. And then Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me? That behold, you are seeking to go to your own country. And he answered, nothing. Nevertheless, you must surely let me go. In other words, I'm not going to tell you. God also raised up another adversary to Solomon, raising the son of Eliada, and you jump down to 26. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, and Ephraimite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And so you see all this rebellion coming up, right? And, and they're fighting against him, and, and Solomon is is um, trying to put to death Jeroboam and, and, and God is disciplining them. And then the last thing we read about in 1 Kings is Solomon's dead. So have the promises of God failed? Did the loving kindness of the Lord be, get removed from Solomon? Well, it certainly seems like it until you realize that Ecclesiastes was Solomon's final words, his final ends, the last thing that he said. And Ecclesiastes, I think, is Solomon trying to explain why he went nuts for most of his life. Right? It's a good book to read when you've come off a long binge of sin. Right? Because all he says in there is all these pursuits were vanity vanity, vapor. They were meaningless. They did not satisfy. There was nothing good about them. And it just led to ruin. But what, is, what does Solomon then say at the last part of the book of Ecclesiastes? The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's Solomon thinking like a redeemed and Christian man. That's him confessing after a life 
of sin and double-mindedness that he acted wickedly. And yet on his deathbed, he confesses this. And so God has granted to him repentance. God granted to him repentance, and he acknowledges God's judgment. That's where Solomon ends, and the words of the Lord, the promises of God never fail. My loving kindness will not depart from Solomon. That's what he said. And indeed, they did not, though, he, though Solomon did everything he could possibly do to sabotage that relationship with the Lord. It's proof proof that um, we're, not, we're not forgiven despite our sin, right? But God granted him repentance for those particular sins, right? God, God granted him repentance and God, and he confesses that before the Lord. I have sought all these ways and God, they are vapor. They are meaningless. They are sin. They are wrong. And in the end, fear God and obey his commandments. And so God gives them that repentance, right? And it's not like God is just sweeping his sins under the rug and saying, you know, despite him being a wicked guy, I made this promise that the, my loving kindness would not leave from him and and, uh, and so we got to figure this out somehow. No. No, it comes through repentance. And that is God's normal and proper way of, of acting. We could go to Hebrews 12 and we could read about how those who go undisciplined by God are not his sons. Solomon got disciplined. And it proves that the loving kindness of the Lord was on him and was not taken away. Verse 16, uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, it's in here somewhere. Verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. Again, that's one of those things where we're like, okay, let's think through the history of Israel. Did things really go well for Israel? And has the king kingdom really been sustained, right? I mean, we read the minor prophets and Israel's a wreck and all the kings are evil and they're not serving God. Kings of Israel are more wicked than the kings of Judah. And, and we think, well, have God's promises failed? Has God's, have God's promises failed? Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And this is where you as Christians pivot and start thinking about Jesus Christ who is God's eternal king seated upon the throne of Israel. Right? What does Luke 1 say when it's speaking about Jesus? He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. Right? So, yes, ethnic Israel decays and stumbles and and basically falls away from God, but that doesn't stop God's promises from being fulfilled. This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy of the Son of God. And, and who reigns on that throne now? Jesus Christ, the King. And then it says, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and His kingdom will have no end. Right? There's no more inaugurations in this kingdom. 
There's no more ascensions to the throne. There's no more saying, the king is dead, long live the king. The king is alive. The king is resurrected. The king is seated to the right hand of the Father. And the king reigns. And that's King Jesus Christ. And that is the fulfillment of this promise. And we are members of his kingdom. A real kingdom. Really in the line of of David. Really in the line of Solomon. Right? Go to those genealogies at the beginning of of the the book uh, of Matthew and Luke. And really in the line. Right? And so now we're established in this kingdom and the promises of God have been fulfilled. And it's glorious. As much as we... uh, as much as we talk about, isn't it great to be in a, in a democracy? We're in a monarchy. <laughs> and Jesus reigns with absolute divine control over that kingdom. And, and what, what wonders there are in that. He reigns now. He reigns forever. He's our king. We are members of his kingdom. Let's live, think, and behave like that, right? We live in in Christ's kingdom. Are we going to be good citizens of that kingdom? I mean, the gloriousness of that kingdom, it's an eternal kingdom. There's been no kingdom in history, obviously, that's ever been like that. Just the gloriousness of that kingdom should motivate us to, to good works, to service, to doing what's becoming of the citizens of that that kingdom. So let's live and think and behave like we live in His kingdom and live to His glory in our God. And then this concludes with David's prayer in 18 through 29. And it's it's just a sweet prayer. And I want to end with this prayer and reading it again and, and setting our minds on it. Then David, the king went in, and notice it says he sat before the Lord. He just plunked down and prayed to God. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? (laughs) Shepherd. And yet, this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future, right? David's like, you've brought me this far, but now you're telling me about the distant future. You're telling me about these glories, these unending glories of someone seated on the throne forever. What does that even mean? Because nations rise and nations fall, but this is going to be an eternal kingdom and, and out of the mouth of the Lord that's been spoken, and so it can't fail. For you have spoken also of, your, of the house of your servant concerning the distant future, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel? 
whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. And you remember when God chose, when it speaks in Deuteronomy about God choosing Israel, he did not choose them for anything impressive, anything significant. He didn't choose them for their size. He chose them because he decided to put his love on them. And that's just like you. He is not impressed with anyone here. He's not. Because we're all miserable sinners and yet here He has chosen us. It's stupendous. It's glorious. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now therefore, O Lord God, The word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken. That your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, You are God, and Your words are truth, and You have promised this good thing to Your servant. Now therefore, may it please You to bless the house of Your servant, that it may continue forever before You. For You, O Lord God, have spoken, and with Your blessing, may the house of Your servant be blessed forever. You, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. And that indeed is what has happened. You think of that blessing being confirmed in in nothing less than the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead, to be seated to the right hand of power of the Father, to reign as the King, um, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, right? And... um, the promises of God have not failed. And yet, if I were Jewish, I certainly would question whether or not the promises of God had failed. Right? What is Israel now? What was it? Read the prophets and it seems that they had fallen away. But God, God's, um, God always acts in ways that we don't expect. And He birthed his eternal son through the womb of a woman to redeem mankind to die and to rise again and to eternally reign as the king of all. And so all of that is wrapped up here in 2 Samuel. How many hundreds of years was this before Jesus arrived on the scene? It was many. It was many, a thousand years prior. Right? And here it is prophesied, and, and there it is worked out in history. And we believe it. We believe that this Jesus was born and reigns as king. And so let's live as fit citizens of his kingdom, remembering these promises that were made to David so many, many years ago. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you that you have called us into such a great kingdom. We see the kingdoms of the world totter and fall and. They are so weak, they are just a drop in the bucket. We think our nation is strong. 
and will last forever, but she's only an infant. She's only 200 years old, 250 years old. And Father, what a, what a joy it is to know that we live in an eternal kingdom with an eternal king, and not just a, a good king, but a king who died for us, a king who sacrificed himself for us, a king who has made sure that as he went, we will also go when, when we rise on the last day for the judgment. Father, thank you for this. We do long for the day when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and we occupy those, those mansions that you've gone ahead to prepare for us. When we walk along the streets of gold, when we eat from the tree of life, when we see the, the tree that heals the nations and yields different fruit 12 times a year, Father, we will think of and, and rejoice and our hearts will, will burst with the joy and thinking of, what a, of the great kingdom that we live in, but more so of the king of that kingdom. Thank you, Father, for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.